Book 15, Part 4, A, of The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book 15, A.D. 62-65, Part 4a. Nero hated and conspired against. Silius Nerva and Atticus Vestinus then entered on the consulship, and now a conspiracy was planned, and at once became formidable, for which senators, knights, soldiers, even women, had given their names with eager rivalry, out of hatred of Nero, as well as a liking for Gaius Piso. A descendant of the Calpurnian house, and embracing in his connections through his father's noble rank many illustrious families, Piso had a splendid reputation with the people from his virtue or semblance of virtue. His eloquence he exercised in the defense of fellow citizens, his generosity towards friends, while even for strangers he had a courteous address and demeanor. He had, too, the fortuitous advantages of tall stature and a handsome face, but solidity of character and moderation in pleasure were wholly alien to him. He indulged in laxity, in display, and occasionally in excess. This suited the taste of that numerous class who, when the attractions of vice are so powerful, do not wish for strictness or special severity on the throne. The origin of the conspiracy was not in Piso's personal ambition, but I could not easily narrate who first planned it, or whose prompting inspired a scheme into which so many entered. That the leading spirits were Subrius Flavus, tribune of a praetorian cohort, and Sulpicius Asper, a centurion, was proved by the fearlessness of their death. Lucanus Annaeus, too, and Plautius Laternus, imported into it an intensely keen resentment. Lucanus had the stimulus of personal motives, for Nero tried to disparage the fame of his poems, and, with the foolish vanity of a rival, had forbidden him to publish them. As for Laternus, a council-elect, it was no wrong, but love of the state which linked him with the others. Flavius Scaevinus and Afranius Quintianus, on the other hand, both of senatorian rank, contrary to what was expected of them, undertook the beginning of this daring crime. Scaevinus, indeed, had enfeebled his mind by excess, and his life, accordingly, was one of sleepy languor. Quintianus, infamous for his infeminate vice, had been satirized by Nero in a lampoon, and was bent on avenging the insult. So, while they dropped hints among themselves or among their friends, about the emperor's crimes, the approaching end of empire, and the importance of choosing some one to rescue the state in its distress, they associated with them Tullius Senecio, Cervarius Proculus, Voctatius Araricus, Julius Augurinus, Munatius Gratus, Antonius Natalus, and Marcius Festus, all Roman knights. Of these, Senecio, one of those who was specially intimate with Nero, still kept up a show of friendship, and had consequently to struggle with all the more dangers. Natalus shared with Piso all his secret plans. The rest built their hopes on revolution. Besides Suburius and Sulpicius, whom I have already mentioned, they invited the aid of military strength, of Gavius Silvanius and Statius Proximus, tribunes of praetorian cohorts, and of two centurions, Maximus Scarus and Venetius Paulus. But their mainstay, it was thought, was Phineas Rufus, the commander of the guard, a man of esteemed life and character, to whom 
Tigellinus, with his brutality and shamelessness, was superior in the emperor's regard. He harassed him with calumnies, and had often put him in terror by hinting that he had been Agrippina's paramour, and from sorrow at her loss was intent on vengeance. And so, when the conspirators were assured by his own repeated language that the commander of the Praetorian Guard had come over to their side, they once more eagerly discussed the time and place of the fatal deed. It was said that Suburius Flavus had formed a sudden resolution to attack Nero when singing on the stage, or when his house was in flames and he was running hither and thither unattended in the darkness. In one case was the opportunity of solitude, in the other the very crowd which would witness so glorious a deed had roused a singularly noble soul. It was only the desire of escape, that foe to all great enterprises which held him back. Meanwhile, as they hesitated in prolonged suspense between hope and fear, a certain Epicarus, how she informed herself is uncertain, as she had never before had a thought of anything noble, began to stir and upbraid the conspirators. Wearied at last by their long delay, she endeavored, when staying in Campania, to shake the loyalty of the officers of the fleet at Messinum, and to entangle them in a guilty complicity. She began thus. There was a captain in the fleet, Volusius Proculus, who had been one of Nero's instruments in his mother's murder, and had not, as he had thought, been promoted in proportion to the greatness of his crime. Either, as an old acquaintance of the woman, or on the strength of a recent intimacy, he divulged to her his services to Nero, and their barren result to himself, adding complaints, and his determination to have vengeance, should the chance arise. He thus inspired the hope that he could be persuaded, and could secure many others. No small help was to be found in the fleet, and there would be numerous opportunities, as Nero delighted in frequent enjoyments of the sea of Puteoli and Messinum. Epicarus accordingly said more, and began the history of all the emperor's crimes. The senate, she affirmed, had no power left it, yet means had been provided whereby he might pay the penalty of having destroyed the state. Only let Proculus gird himself to do his part, and to bring over to their side his bravest soldiers, and then look for an adequate recompense. The conspirators' names, however, she withheld. Consequently, the information of Proculus was useless, even though he reported what he had heard to Nero. For Epicarus, being summoned and confronted with the informer, easily silenced him, unsupported as he was by a single witness. But she was herself detained in custody, for Nero suspected that even what was not proved to be true was not wholly false. The conspirators, however, alarmed by the fear of disclosure, resolved to hurry on the assassination at Baii, in Piso's villa, whither the emperor, charmed by its loveliness, often went, and where, unguarded and without the cumbrous grandeur of his rank, he would enjoy the bath and the banquet. But Piso refused, alleging the odium of an act which would stain with an emperor's blood, however bad he might be, the sanctity of the hospitable board and the deities who preside over it. Better, he said, in the capital, in that hateful mansion which was piled up with the plunder of the citizens, or in public, to accomplish what, on the state's behalf, they had undertaken. So he said openly, with, however, a secret apprehension that Lucius Salinus might, on the strength of his distinguished rank and the teachings of Gaius Cassius, under whom he had been trained, aspire to any greatness and seize an empire which would be promptly offered him by all who had no part in the conspiracy, and who might pity Nero as the victim of a crime. Many thought that Piso shunned also the enterprising spirit of Vestinus, the consul, who might, he feared, rise up in the cause of freedom, 
or, by choosing another emperor, make the state his own gift. Festinus, indeed, had no share in the conspiracy, though Nero, on that charge, grafted an old resentment against an innocent man. At last they decided to carry out their design, on that day of the circus games, which is celebrated in honor of Ceres. As the emperor, who seldom went out, and shut himself up in his house or gardens, used to go to the entertainments of the circus, and access to him was easier from his keen enjoyment of the spectacle. They had arranged the order of the plot, that Laternus was to throw himself at the prince's knee, in earnest entreaty, apparently craving relief for his private necessities, and, being a man of strong nerve and huge frame, hurl him to the ground and hold him down. When he was prostrate and powerless, the tribunes and centurions and all the others who had sufficient daring were to rush up and do the murder, the first blow being claimed by Scyvenus, who had taken a dagger from the Temple of Safety, or, according to another account, from that of Fortune, in the town of Ferentum, and used to wear the weapon as though dedicated to some noble deed. Piso, meanwhile, was wait in the sanctuary of Ceres, whence he was to be summoned by Phineas, the commander of the guard, and by the others, and then conveyed into the camp, and accompanied by Antonia, the daughter of Claudius Caesar, with a view to invoke the people's enthusiasm. So it was related by Gaius Pliny. Handed down, however, from another source, I had no intention of suppressing it, however absurd it may seem, either that Antonia should have lent her name at her life's peril to a hopeless project, or that Piso, with his well-known affection for his wife, should have pledged himself to another marriage. But for the fact that the lust of dominion inflames the heart more than any other passion. It was, however, wonderful how among people of different class, rank, age, sex, among rich and poor, everything was kept in secrecy till betrayal began from the house of Scyvenus. The day before the treacherous attempt, after a long conversation with Antonius Natalis, Scyvenus returned home, sealed his will, and drawing from its sheath the dagger of which I had already spoken, and complaining that it was blunted from long disuse, he ordered it to be sharpened on a stone to a keen and bright point. This task he assigned to his freeman, Milicus, at the same time sat down to a more than usually sumptuous banquet, and gave his favorite slaves their freedom and money to others. He was himself depressed, and evidently in profound thought, though he affected gaiety in desultory conversation. Last of all, he directed ligatures for wounds and the means of staunching blood to be prepared by the same Milicus, who either knew of the conspiracy and was faithful up to this point, or was in complete ignorance and then first caught suspicions, as most authors have inferred from what followed. For when his servile imagination dwelt on the rewards of perfidy, he saw before him at the same moment boundless wealth and power, conscious and care for his patron's life, together with the remembrance of the freedom he had received, fled from him. From his wife, too, he had adopted a womanly yet baser suggestion, for she even held over him a dreadful thought that many had been present, both freedmen and slaves, who had seen what he had, that one man's silence would be useless, whereas the rewards would be for him alone who was first with the information. Accordingly, at daybreak, Milicus went to the Servilian gardens, and finding the doors shut against him, said again and again that he was the bearer of important and alarming news. Upon this he was conducted by the gatekeepers to one of Nero's freedmen, Epaphroditus, and by him to Nero, whom he informed of the urgent danger, of the formidable conspiracy, and of all else which he had heard or inferred. He showed him, too, the weapon prepared for his destruction, 
and bade him summon the accused. Scyvenus, on being arrested by the soldiers, began his defense with a reply that the dagger, about which he was accused, had of old been regarded with a religious sentiment by his ancestors, that it had been kept in his chamber, and been stolen by a trick of his freedmen. He had often, he said, signed his will without heeding the observance of particular days, and had previously given presents of money as well as freedom to some of his slaves. Only on this occasion he gave more freely, because, as his means were now impoverished, and his creditors were pressing him, he distrusted the validity of his will. Certainly his table had always been profusely furnished, his life luxurious, such as rigid censors would hardly approve. As to the bandages for wounds, none had been prepared at his order, but, as all the other man's charges were absurd, he added an accusation in which he might make himself alike informer and witness. He backed up his words by an air of resolution. Turning on his accuser, he denounced him as an infamous and depraved wretch, with so fearless a voice and look that the information was beginning to collapse, when Milicus was reminded by his wife that Antonius Natalis had had a long, secret conversation with Scavinus, and that both were Piso's intimate friends. Natalis was therefore summoned, and they were separately asked what the conversation was, and what was its subject. Then a suspicion arose because their answers did not agree, and they were both put in irons. They could not endure the sight and threat of torture. Natalis, however, taking the initiative, knowing as he did more of the whole conspiracy, and being also more practiced in accusing, first confessed about Piso, then adding the name of Aeneas Seneca, either as having been a messenger between him and Piso, or to win the favor of Nero, who hated Seneca, and sought every means for his ruin. Then Scyvenus, too, when he knew the discourse of Natalis, with like pusillanimity, or under the impression that everything was now divulged, and that there could be no more advantage in silence, revealed the other conspirators. Of these, Lucanus, Quintianus, and Senecio long persisted in denial. After a time, when bribed by the promise of impunity, anxious to excuse their reluctance, Lucanus named his mother Attila, Quintianus and Seneca their chief friends, respectively Glitius Gallus and Aeneas Polio. Nero, meanwhile, remembering that Epicarus was in custody on the information of Volusius Proculus, and assuming that a woman's frame must be unequal to the agony, ordered her to be torn on the rack. But neither the scourge, nor fire, nor the fury of the men as they increased the torture that they may not be a woman's scorn overcame her positive denial of the charge. Thus the first day's inquiry was futile. On the morrow, as she was being dragged back on a chair to the same torments, for with her limbs all dislocated she could not stand, she tied a band which she had stripped off her bosom in a sort of noose to the arched back of the chair, put her neck in it, and then, straining with the whole weight of her body, wrung out of her frame its little remaining breath. All the nobler was the example set by a freedwoman at such a crisis in screening strangers and those whom she hardly knew, when free-born men, Roman knights, and senators, yet unscathed by torture, betrayed every one his dearest kinsfolk. For even Lucanus and Senecio and Quintianus failed not to reveal their accomplices indiscriminately, and Nero was more and more alarmed, though he fenced his person with a largely augmented guard. Even Rome itself he put, so to say, under custody, garrisoning its walls with companies of soldiers, and occupying with troops the coast and river banks. Incessantly were there flying through the public places, through private houses, country fields, and the neighboring villages, horse and foot soldiers, 
mixed with the Germans, whom the emperor trusted as being foreigners. In long succession, troops of prisoners and chains were dragged along and stood at the gates of his gardens. When they entered to plead their cause, a smile of joy on any of the conspirators, a casual conversation, a sudden meeting, or the fact of having entered a banquet or a public show in company, was construed into a crime, while to the savage questionings of Nero and Tigellinus were added the violent menaces of Phineas Rufus, who had not yet been named by the informers, but who, to get the credit of complete ignorance, frowned fiercely on his accomplices. When Subius Flavus, at his side, asked him by a sign whether he should draw his sword in the middle of the trial and perpetrate the fatal deed, Rufus refused and checked the man's impulse as he was putting his hand to his sword hilt. Some there were who, as soon as the conspiracy was betrayed, urged Piso, while Milicus's story was being heard, and Scyvenus was hesitating, to go to the camp, or mount the rostra, and test the feelings of the soldiers and of the people. If, said they, your accomplices join your enterprises, those who are yet undecided will follow, and great will be the fame of the movement once started. And this and any new scheme is all-powerful. Against it Nero has taken no precaution. Even brave men are dismayed by sudden perils. Far less will that stage-player, with Tigellinus forsooth and his concubines in his train, raise arms against you. Many things are accomplished on trial which cowards think arduous. It is vain to expect secrecy and fidelity from the varying tempers and bodily constitutions of such a host of accomplices. Torture or reward can overcome everything. Men will soon come to put you also in chains, and inflict on you an ignominious death. How much more glorious will you die while you cling to the state, and invoke aid for liberty? Rather let the soldiers fail, the people be traitors, provided that you, if prematurely robbed of life, justify your death to your ancestors and descendants. Unmoved by these considerations, Piso showed himself a few minutes in public, then sought the retirement of his house, and there fortified his spirit against the worst, till a troop of soldiers arrived, raw recruits, or men recently enlisted, whom Nero had selected, because he was afraid of the veterans, imbued, though they were, with a liking for him. Piso expired by having the veins of his arms severed. His will, full of loathsome flatteries of Nero, was a concession to his love of his wife, a base woman, with only a beautiful person to recommend her, whom he had taken away from her husband, one of his friends. Her name was Atria Gala, that of her former husband, Domitius Silas. The tame spirit of the man, the profligacy of the woman, blazoned Piso's infamy. End of Book 15, Part 4a